we're going to quit putting any uniform excess uh, unwanted uniforms into landfill for the next 20 years and we're going to figure out as an industry what to do with these goods so they're repurposed i have no doubt about it. the uniformer insights and interviews into the people and companies that drive the markets for uniforms image apparel and public safety equipment the Uniformer is a production of the Network Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors, the NAUMD. Hello, welcome to The Uniformer. I'm Rick Levine, Executive Director of the NAUMD, Network Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors. Thrilled today to have Thomas Wheeler, Tom Wheeler, uh, with us uh, today. And Tom is, well, he's had a lot of roles in this sort of wacky industry that we're all a part of. Uh, rich history, and we're going to get into all of that. But currently, Tom, you really uh, focus on being a, a board member at Martex Fibers. Uh, is that correct? First of all, welcome to the show, Tom. Well, thank you very much. Good morning to you, Rick. How you doing? Tell us what uh, your role is at Martex Fibers, and uh, maybe just a quick also about what Martex Fibers does. First, uh, I appreciate your invitation to join you on the Uniformer and the podcast. Uh, I'm honored to spend some time with you and talk a little bit about my background and uh, things that I've done in the industry career-wise. Martex Fiber, labor of love for me. I'm chairman of the board of directors of Martex Fiber, Martex being North America's uh, largest uh, recycler of uh, primarily post-industrial textile waste. We collect uh, hundreds of millions of pounds of uh, post-industrial waste that is the percentage of, primarily the percentage of goods that fall off the cutting table. Uh, all of us in the industry, when we cut goods, if we're really good at it, we lay patterns on top of uh, whether it was the old manual process or automated cutting. We lay patterns on top of fabric and cut around these patterns. And if your material usage is really good, there's still a three or 4% excess that fall off the cutting table. A generation, generation and a half ago, all of that excess ended up in landfills all over this country. And today, uh, Martex collects it uh, from our wonderful partners, the Fruit of the Looms, the Haynes, the Gildans of the world. We collect it, we process it uh, in a couple of our plants in the United States, Spartanburg, South Carolina, Brownsville, Texas. Uh, and that rejuvenated fiber uh, is blended and primarily sold to the automobile industry. I will give everybody listening to this podcast uh, some useless information to use at your next cocktail party. Uh, but every automobile in this country contains 35 pounds in and around of excess textile waste. That is uh, padding, it's firewalls, it's um, insulation. So our big customers from our techs are the automobile uh, companies. We certainly sell fiber to people that use it for insulation. That meal that you got last night that was delivered from a third party and contained uh, packaging and insulation around uh, your shrimp scampi is uh, is Martex uh, fiber uh, in in most cases Martex fiber that Everlast punching bag that contains our goods mats we're building more and more uh, customer base 
that use uh, our fiber in, in varied uh, manners and uh, ways. My job as chairman of the board, I work for a wonderful private equity fund that owns the company. They're located in Radnor, Pennsylvania, Milestone Partners. I've been with them a long time, almost a decade. I'm an operating partner for them and the chairman of one of their portfolio companies, Martex Fiber. But my job is primarily uh, to help with strategy, to help with compliance, and certainly the huge part of which, uh, the responsibility of a board member is oversight. You represent as an independent director, which I am, you represent all the stakeholders in, in Martex, uh, the lenders, the vendors, people that we do business with, uh, we either buy goods or sell goods, and it's a compliance oversight responsibility. Make sure that checks and balances are in place, that we're operating with heightened uh, standards and integrity. And since there is varied interest at the board table and varied interest in terms of our stakeholders, that independent voice, that independent referee at the board table from time to time becomes a very important aspect of a really well-run company, which Martex. You know, I don't think I appreciated until just now, uh, and, and, and you and I have talked more than once, that 3%, you know, using that round number of fabric uh, goes to the cutting room floor and then has to be dealt with in some manner. I mean, to put it, you know, many of many people listening might say, well, it's just 3%. How can you, you know, you can't possibly use 100% of the fabric. But if you think about it, that means for every 100 shirts made, three of them are potentially immediately thrown away. That's a good, that's a great, great way to look at it. Even though the cutting process has gotten better and better over the years, from my younger days where it was all manual, it was a six, seven, eight percent fallout, which is uh, it's much less than that now. But when the you think about the size and the reach and the magnitude of the Gildans and the Fruit of Looms and the Haynes and, and many others, three percent of hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds of textile processing so much okay there there really is three levels of sort of circularity processing and a recycling uh, apparel and textile environment there's the post-industrial which we just talked about okay pre-consumer which we kind of classify as goods that are made but for whatever reason they don't get to market and they're discontinued so there's a certain percent of finished goods that don't get to market that companies make for whatever the reason is, okay? Uh, they were defective. They didn't feel like they could sell them. They made too much. For a while, we thought outlet stores would be the answer to that, right? Correct. And they just, well, and in a huge way, they handled a lot of it, but they couldn't handle it all, all of it, Yeah. okay? We're going through an unfortunate era. We just read about in the paper, for instance, uh, online, or if anybody still reads newspapers, it's all online now, I guess, but you know, where there, we've seen some pretty severe cancellations of purchase orders for this fall retail environment. Uh, in uh, news last week about significant POs that were canceled. Well, those goods may not make it to market in some places, you know, and they, they may have to get processed. And then the big mother load of uh, recycling that there is yet to, to uh, have a, uh, a real answer to the problem is post-consumer. Uh, 
post-consumer goods. And it's very limited, the percentage of those post-consumer goods that are currently getting recycled. So uh, there's another company in this space that uh, assists our members uh, called DeBrand, and um, they talk in terms of, for the uniform industry, Tom, they say less than 1% right now are being recycled in the post-consumer space. And and so uh, what that means is that the uniforms, right? So I'm wearing a polo shirt at the moment. If I get issued three polo shirts a year, right? What am I doing with the three polo shirts that I've washed you know, a hundred times each and, you know, at the end of the year. So that's post-consumer. So what happens to those three shirts is what you're talking about uh, for specific for our industry, correct? Correct. Absolutely correct. You're, you're absolutely spot on. Um, so to, let's take, let's use your analogy and talk about those three shirts that uh, have been worn. The Their usefulness is behind them. Uh, they don't present the right uh, image to uh, uh as a public contact employee to their customer across the car rental uh, table or counter, et cetera, they, they, what, what do we do with those, okay, as an industry? The vast majority of those right now are being landfilled, the vast majority of them. But I will tell you as somebody that's sort of in the middle of the macro strategies and dealing with numbers of enterprises that are well-funded that are working diligently to find the big solution for recycling post-consumer. There are numbers of companies, Recover over in Spain and Evernew, one of Martex's partners down in the Carolinas. It's either a mechanical solution or a chemical solution in terms of recycling. What we've got to do with those three shirts is turn it into a, a valuable fiber. Some of those, Some of those shirts end up in our operation down in Brownsville, Texas, they're, they're, they're processed ground up and we use that fiber for that automotive industry, in some cases, auto industry, but it'll end up in Ever, Everlast's punching bag or the mats or those kinds of things. But it's a very, very small percentage right now. If you took the whole world and you took textiles, including yarn, uh, apparel, post-industrial textiles, et cetera, and you took them all in a basket and you said, how much of that is recycled versus landfill? I think we're just approaching maybe double digits, maybe 10% if you took it all across uh, the world, okay? Maybe a little less. The good news is that's up a few points from five years ago. And the good news is that there is a dozen really well-funded, well-run enterprises that are looking for solutions to make maybe double that number in the next 10 years. So it, it, it there's we're working in an environment that many people are trying to find a, a solution to what is a significant environmental problem. So, you know, what's interesting is at the beginning of your career, Tom, you probably never could have imagined you'd be having this conversation at all, right? You were um, in the oh C-suite yes. of some of, you know, some, some very large companies, Fashioneer, in the uniform space for um, uh, people that have, you know, a longer memory will know, you know, that that was a very large player in the corporate image apparel 
um, space and, and, and many spaces uh, in our industry. And at Heartmarks, you played a key role. That's a, you know, a, a well-known brand in the apparel industry. And then you spent time at, at Wigwam Mills. So you saw, you know, um, certainly on the production side of, you know, fabric coming off of the, uh, of the line and not, you know, just what happens at the end of the line. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about your background and then maybe how you feel that that's informing what, you know, we, we started the conversation about, which is what Martex is all about. Yeah, sure. Thank you. You know, I just maybe one brief more comment in terms of Martex. I, I got my statement and said, this is sort of a labor of love. I really feel like I'm compensating for some uh, of my uh, sins in this industry uh, <laughs> as a, operating as a CEO where I was just blinded. I, I wasn't conscious of the the blight and the environmental impact on how my plants made their goods, how we dyed them, how we screen printed them. It was just not, it was just not front and center in terms of uh, our daily discussions at the, uh, you know, the informal board table or the environment that we talked about our business every day. It just, it just didn't register 20 years ago or 15, 20 years ago or whatever. So I kind of feel Martex, uh, I, I, my endeavors and my hard work in that company, I feel good about it. You know, we're, make no mistake about it. Martex is a capitalistic, monetarily driven company. You know, we, we look to make a profit, et cetera. But the activity, the business mission, our mantra, uh, our core DNA uh, of uh, recycling, uh, sustainability, circularity activities, I look at that as a nice balance to all those sins that I committed as a CEO in the apparel industry earlier in my career. So I feel good about that, right? Uh, I can talk about that when I encounter St. Peter at the Pearly Gates. I can talk a little bit about that balance. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing good you know, and making money. That's actually also, you know, over the decades and into this century, that is a, a cultural shift, right? The good corporate citizen is interesting. It, uh, on my social feed, um, randomly something came up this past week and you're reminding me of it, which is a picture of how the, the, manuf the producers, food processors for wheat used to take the sacks that the wheat would come in big sacks. And when they realized that that families, uh, mothers, grandmothers, whoever, I'm, I'm stereotyping, but whoever was taking the sacks and making clothing for their children. So they started uh, using floral prints and attractive prints um, randomly on the sacks so that kids would have something a little nicer to wear. Um, they didn't have to do that. It cost them you know, a little bit extra to make those sacks more attractive in a sense, right? They, But they just did it because they felt it was doing good while they were still selling their wheat. That's a great story. That's a great story. That's the beginning. That's the beginning of sustainability and circularity was the, was the, was the decorated flower sacks that, uh, to use your, your term, that grandma's made into their grandchildren's clothing. Uh, that's a great story. That's a terrific story. You know, I've been I've been one of those very lucky, blessed guys in this career. Is that I have uh, been fortunate enough to hold a number of positions, uh, both in terms of senior kind of uh, operating roles for several companies. I have uh, worked as a board director um, in a number of environments, and 
I have been just really blessed with working with incredible people in incredible environments. Uh, some very challenging, uh, uh, goes without saying, uh, in uh, privately held, family held companies, in private equity environments, in publicly traded companies. So I've been able to touch a number of environments. But, you know, kind of common denominator across the board has been good, healthy enterprises with really good people that had great intentions, great ambitions, hardworking, good balance between working hard and playing hard, uh, very fun people, et cetera. Um, my fashion air days, I grew up through that business. That was, uh, I got out of college. Uh, I worked on a political campaign in Chicago for about uh, two years, uh, a mayoral campaign. I helped manage that campaign. I was pretty young and I was broke and unemployed. Uh, I was very broke and very unemployed. And I, a, a wonderful lady, mayor economist, she worked at uh, Human Resources at Hartshap Earmarks. She was from my hometown of Oak Park, Illinois. And uh, I called her looking for a job. And she said, well, we have this uniform company called Fashion Air, and they're looking for an account exec. Do you want to come in and interview? Well, I didn't know anything about apparel. I didn't know anything about clothing. Uh, you know, the only thing I knew about clothing is I barely could dress myself uh, respectfully. Okay. Um, so I went and interviewed, I got the job and I said to myself, I'm going to do this for a handful of months until I figure out what I want to do when I grow up. I was coming off that political environment, et cetera. And I never left the industry. I fell in love with it. Um, Fashion Air was a wonderful company, uh, terrific uniform, uh, provider, uh, vendor, marketer, or whatever terminology you want to use to it. But we made an, uh, just a wonderful tailored uniform. We were the dominant force. I've got a few competitors or old competitors who listen to this podcast and say, you weren't the dominant force, but we were the dominant force in terms of uh, incredibly wonderfully designed uh, tailored uniforms at the peak of what kind of formal dress was in the uniform business. I was very, very young, but got to work with uh, the Halsteads of the world and the Cacherelles of the world and the Ralph Lorenz of the world. Stan Herman uh, was a big uh, designer for us, wonderful guy that did McDonald's and United. I get together with that old crew uh, that I worked with them, Damian Murphy and Brian Pelash and Patty Vavra, just terrific friends and terrific people. And we talk about the 20 airlines that we did uniforms for that no longer exist. The Pan Am, AWAs, mm. the America West, the Frontiers, the great company, the PSA out in the West Coast, Air Cal. Oh, gosh, there's a whole laundry list of, of folks. America West, wonderfully designed uniforms. And we just, we worked hard, but we had a ton of fun. It was, a, it was just a, such an energetic, uh, dynamic environment back then in terms of that uh, uniform business. We did McDonald's, we did Avis Rent-A-Car, we did uh, numbers of other programs. Um, but the, 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 the core to that business was an environment where it was really dressy. It was really kind of formal in terms of the dress environment. And, and I, will, I will add to this, just and I don't want to sound like some old guy that uh, ran a uniform company from a few decades ago, so I apologize to our younger folks that listen to this podcast. But I do wonder from time to time, we've had a terrible time 
on uh, airplanes as of late, the last couple of years, with the lack of stability in that environment uh, by the passengers. Uh, you know, many airlines have cut off liquor sales and they've had just severe problems. And it may be a byproduct of the world we live in today in terms of some other macro issues. But I wonder from time to time if we've lost a little bit from the image of that employee, that airline employee, that when there was more formality in the dress, that maybe that came with a heightened level of respect and uh, uh, by the by the passenger, by the consumer and by the passenger, that maybe some of that formal dress brought in a little bit different environment uh, in that environment. Now, maybe that's pushing it a little bit, that analogy, but I have thought about it from time to time. There is no doubt in my mind that the appearance will project the nature of authority of the wearer. So it doesn't necessarily mean you have more authority than you used to have or that you'll have tomorrow, but there is no doubt that the appearance projects the nature of authority and the relationship that a company wants their employee to have with their customer. And the the dress down trend has been highly appropriate in so many circumstances to allow companies to have a more intimate relationship with their customers that they may not have had uh, before when employees perhaps felt more formal. Uh, but I I cannot disagree. And of course, this is anecdotal. We don't have any data to support this. But I cannot disagree that a flight attendant, you know, who uh, is just dressed like me, right, um, is not going to, you know, the nature of authority that I attribute to that employee is not going to be the same as as I will to the navigator or the you know co-pilot or the captain because they're still in you know a, a coat they still have epaulets they have a a headwear granted it might not have scrambled eggs that the military have on their headwear but but there's some kind of shield or you know a headwear that demonstrates they're closer to law enforcement <laughs> and security um, than anyone else uh, in my vicinity. And, and and the crazy videos we've been seeing of people being, you know, just rude to someone, uh, you know, who's just trying to get the plane boarded, seated, you know, and, and you know, take off safely is, you know, it is astounding. Um, now, I also agree with you that, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of where we're at, right? That we're all disrespectful. It used to be that we could have disagreements and have a respectful debate with each other. And now we see disagreements as a character flaw. We see it that if you don't agree with me politically, um, emotionally or something, right? That that we just, you know, that's it. I'm writing you off. I am canceling you. Yeah, no, I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I miss the days as a pretty active political guy in my in my career um, that you could sit over a cocktail and have a good spirited debate and not end up at a an uncivil disrespectful aggressive almost hate uh, filled environment in terms of that person that you're having this debate with we we're missing 
we need to debate, we need to have disagreements and we need to have debate and we need to have understanding that uh, you can respect uh, a position that you don't agree with, uh, that can find some, you know, back back to, you made a really good point in terms of that, uh, and we're using, we're using the cabin environment on an airplane, but there are other environments that we could talk about on uniform wearers. But I think it's a, I think it, there's a two-way benefit here in terms of, and I'm not suggesting that, that this environment, that we're going to go back to the real formality of the peak of fashion airs business uh, in terms of the Pan Ams and uh, TWAs and those environments, but a heightened sort of formality. I, not only do I think it projects to the customer uh, a solid uh, and much needed uh, perspective in terms of the formality and a flight attendant that is projecting a level of uh, I need respect, I deserve respect, I've earned respect sort of environment. But even for that flight attendant that is a little more formally dressed, I think he or she feels uh, a little better about themselves. I think there's a little less to pull the trigger in terms of being able to look past maybe the slightest little thing that you don't want to rev it up in terms of a a confrontation. You know, it's a matter of self-respect and self-image sometimes that if there isn't that in place, it can lead into uh, an unwanted confrontation. So I think it's kind of a two-way street sometimes. You know, we're talking about styles and of course they come and go and some, you know, believe that they return, right? So maybe, you know, uh, next year we'll all look like flight attendants from the 60s, you know, who knows? But but uh, those that have heard you speak, so so having all of these styles, you know, come and go means that as soon as the style changes, you have uh, inventory that's no longer, you know, good, that you're not going to be able to use. And some that have heard you speak, uh, there's a there's a story that you've used a whole bunch. So that's as much as I'll tell you. Well. What's that story, Tom? Uh, you you must have uh, spoken with a, a friend or two of mine over the years uh, that I've been with over the years. Um, yeah, indeed, I've told this story. I have let off many uh, a sales meeting or gathering uh, with this story. You know, one of one of the common denominators of all uniform companies. Uh, is the challenges that we have on what to do with uh, our excess obsolete inventory. You know, I would I would uh, negotiate contracts with the Uniteds and the Americans and the bigger players that they had some responsibility, financial responsibility at that end of the contract when they decide they're moving from, you know, a changeover, a design of a new uniform program, a changeover, uh, that they would have some responsibility, but normally the uniform vendor uh, has some responsibility as well, financial responsibility. But at the end of the day, you've got a warehouse full of goods sometimes that you need to get rid of. And that uniform uh, customer is no longer wearing that uniform. So kind of a long lead in, I apologize, but I'll get to the story. My fashioner days, uh, I was with uh, Heart Chapter Marks, it became Heart Marks, and I had a warehouse that uh, over on Kinsey Street in uh, Chicago, and it was just chock full of uniforms, okay? The vast majority being black or navy blue, the vast majority, but there were several hundred 
the maybe approaching a thousand raincoats in that warehouse that were the brightest orange you ever saw. And they were Frontier Airlines obsolete raincoats. This was Frontier number one, not Frontier number two that exists today, but out of out of Denver, Frontier number one. And you know, fortunately, uh, through my career at Heartmarks, uh, I I survived and and I guess prospered under the leadership, this really skilled leadership of four different chairmen of that corporation. Okay, now I didn't report to that chairman. I reported to a guy that reported to a guy that reported to that chairman. But I would have on this offsite, I would have a occasional meeting. The chairman of our company would come over and visit uh, the fashioner facility on Kinsey Street. And a wonderful guy, uh, I'll, I'll leave his name out of the story, but a wonderful guy that was one of the chairmen. He, old, old school guy, great sense of humor, great wit, uh, worked really hard. But he just swore like a drunken sailor. He was an old uh, school guy. Okay. So he came over, uh, you know, maybe once a year. They kind of left me alone. They came over once a year. He walked through the warehouse and I, he would look up into the corner and they, it was like this big beacon in the corner of the warehouse, these orange raincoats. Okay. And it would just, it's, uh, stuck out like a sore thumb. Okay. It was just like a beacon you could put, you know, you could put lights on it and it wouldn't light up any uh, more than it was. And I could hear him today. I could hear this, uh, uh, uh kind of really good guy, the chairman, uh, just cussing, you, you know, get rid get, can't you get rid of those effing, you know, raincoats and what are they doing in here and blah, blah, blah. So he would leave. It would become secondary. Uh, it wasn't top of mind getting rid of these raincoats. So, uh, you know, year would go by, those raincoats were still sitting there. Well, he, I got a call from the secretary. He's going to go home and visit tomorrow. This was maybe a year after the last visit. Oh, my gosh, I got to get rid of these raincoats. I don't want to get yelled at again. So I called a friend of mine who was a, uh, a nun uh, in Chicago that worked for Catholic Charities. And I had, uh, I had given her go- lots of goods over the years. I was pretty active with this Catholic charity organization. And I shipped over that day a thousand orange raincoats to her, okay, to Catholic Charities and with the intent to write them off. So two weeks later, I am driving from Oak Park. If anybody knows where Oak Park, Illinois is, it's just west of Chicago, okay? And I would go occasionally on the Eisenhower Expressway to the office, but most often I would take Chicago Avenue east to Grand and I would make a a ride on Grand Avenue into Kinsey's office, okay, through the city. And you went through some, you know, pretty tough neighborhoods back then. Some of them are still a little tough, I guess. But back then, uh, 15, 20 years ago, there was several. So I'm at the intersection of Chicago Avenue and Grand. And I turn to my right, and there are three winos sitting in the grass over there. Uh, all three of them are wearing my orange raincoats that I had donated to Catholic Charities. The sleeves are halfway down. And I said to myself, no matter what I do, I can't get rid of these raincoats. So that's uh, my, my world best <laughs> ops you know, story. We have the ops. And that's a great story, by the way. I love that. Uh, take note that you did good. I did. I did good. But I was also saving my hide at that at that moment, too, with the German coming over. So it was self it was self uh, protecting as well. Yes. Preservation. Yes. So, of course, now. Right. You say, oh, well, let's send them in for upcycling, recycling, not upcycling. I did upcycle. 
so if that was 20 years ago, where do you see us going 20 years from now? Just to completely go on a different tangent here. What's the future like? You know, so when, <laughs> I mean, for instance, when you talk to your uh, venture capital partners and, you know, you all, you have to have crystal balls to be a venture capitalist. <laughs> so, you know, where do we see, where do we see it going? How do we, you know, are there predictions for how we protect our, our workers better? Are there predictions for, you know, style shifts? You know, do you actually think we might return to um, a more, I don't want to use, the word formal doesn't really cover it, but a, a more tailored look, let's say, you know, where, where are we headed? Do you, when you look at the uniform industry, and I know you talk, still talk to uniform companies all the time, uh, oh, you were uh, uh, thankfully uh, one of our judges for the uh, 2022 Image of the Year awards. So you got to see a whole bunch of, you know, I think we had a hundred entries for for those, and so you got to see a whole bunch of current programs <clears throat> and the styles and what they're doing. And so it's a good question. Being able to offer a perspective, you know, at this point in my career. With a lot of years ahead of me, but I'm at that midpoint or beyond a little bit and can look past or look uh, in the past. Here are a few observations. Uh, just uh, this guy's humble. First, first that the my responsibilities as a judge for uh, last year's uh, or this year's image of uh, the year award, uh, it really was an enjoyable experience for me. I was very impressed with the quality of design and the quality of overall of today's uniform programs. Now, it's a broad statement, I, I admit. I looked at, uh, what, a few dozen companies' entries. Uh, certainly, there were 30 or 40 different companies represented uh, in terms of uh, submissions, et cetera. Uh, on, on a whole, I was very impressed with the design capabilities, both internal and external designers just because they weren't quite as tailored as my taste level sometimes or my perspective, et cetera, didn't mean that they weren't exquisitely, wonderfully designed uniform programs. And I voted uh, aggressively and supported a number of them that I thought were just really wonderfully uh, designed. Um, those challenges of design has always been a difficult one for our uniform business. You're making it once one image, one uniform, for a 46 portly for a guy to a 38 short to a size 16 for a, a woman to a size two. And it's hard to design a uniform program that's going to look good on that kind of broad uh, scale and perspective. It's very difficult. So the ones that, uh, you know, my, my compliments and I applaud the design effort by these companies because I thought they were very good. I do think as we move forward, a couple of things I see in the next uh, 10, 20 years. One, the, the industry is going to find a solution on terms of sustainability. Just like the broader apparel business, the uniform business is going to find the solution that recycles all of our goods into repurposed into a secondary life, life number two for fiber or uniforms, et cetera. And those solutions are going to sort out. We're going to quit putting any uniform excess uh, unwanted uniforms into landfill in the next 20 years. And we're going to figure out as an industry what to do with these goods so they're repurposed. I have no doubt about it. Okay. It's a broader macro issue for the for the apparel businesses, the huge significant apparel businesses and textiles and yarn. 
but it's also specifically the uniform business. We're going to find that path and that solution because there's lots of companies that are working outside of our sphere uh, of knowledge or sphere of perspective that are looking, that are uh, investing heavily into finding that solution. That's the first thing. Second thing is I do think we're going to get a little bit more uh, as an industry, a little, I don't want to use the formal, I think you're right, that's not a good term, maybe a little more tailored, maybe a little, I don't want to say sophisticated, what's the right word, Rick? I'm looking for a word here. An elevated style, where that it won't be, I think there was a trend to go to everyday wear, right? So when you talk, you mentioned, you know, name dropped some companies like McDonald's. So if you take what McDonald's, you know, cycle has been, right? They go from button down shirts for everyone to only button down shirts for management. So they're, you know, in the fast food, that may be an example of, you know, of of a return to a a, a more upscale uh, something that projects a little a little more uh, authority or style um, with their choice. You know, but what's what's interesting about like our our uh, fast food or a quick service industry in this country is a big concern with some manufacturers and distributors is you know how every day do we make it because sometimes those will be the nicest clothes yeah, no, that's a good point. <laughs> that a worker might have and so they're going to wear it to the picnic on saturday even though yep. they're not going to work on saturday and so there's just that slightly additional um time that they're cutting off of the wear you know wearability of that garment it's funny you brought up mcdonald's and this wasn't too many years ago McDonald's, McDonald's founder, Ray Kroc, is from Oak Park, Illinois. Okay. So McDonald's was a huge influence on the west side of Chicago and Oak Park. And, uh, but when Fashion Air did McDonald's uniforms, the managers, the assistant managers wore a blue blazer and a shirt and tie. So, uh, even in that fast food environment, there was a, again, I'm using that word, but there was a heightened level of formality in terms of even that environment in fast food. Okay, interesting point. Um, but uh, I do see we'll follow the trends of the, the broader uh, global apparel businesses uh, and textile businesses, and those solutions will be in place for uniform providers to take that excess, that obsolete, those orange raincoats that I gave to Catholic charities. There'll be a formal path to uh, take that excess, repurpose it have heightened levels of sustainability and you know it it the first steps will be that one uh, repurposed and uh, one the new life for that uniform but they'll even be uh, a second and a third new life for that fiber going down uh, the road okay that's where the trends are and that's what we forward to as a uniform industry in my opinion so i do that the other the other aspect of this over the next 10 15 years We'll be making more uniforms in this country than we were three, four, five years ago because of just supply chain, just supply chain replenishment. This country or maybe this hemisphere, um, I'm still very active with a very sizable firm that I spent a, a number of years with, several years with, uh, in Central America. And they are the a significant supplier of cotton knit goods to the U.S. market. At, at numbers of levels, the Reeboks, the Nikes, the the North Faces, the Vans, uh, you know, kind of the big uh, cotton knit, embellished, screen printed, embroidered 
uh, goods at retail in this country. And I spent time with them as an operating partner. I've done numbers of things over the years. But I have seen a huge growth of expansion of apparel and textile uh, assets and resources the last two years in Central America. And uh, reason being is many folks are having trouble getting their goods in from China, from the Far East. Uh, it's become very expensive to ship these goods over to the United States. There's long lead times. Uh, there are numbers of other impact issues. In Central America, which I am a big advocate of that work and business environment, particularly for the apparel textile business, we've got uh, consumers in Central America that buy U.S. goods and services versus the Far East. And I've been a very advocate. There's been a two-way street in terms of uh, business trading and just business done on both sides of the equation. But as this grows in Central America, the uniform industry is going to be sourcing more and more goods out of Central America versus the Far East. I see that as a trend line over the next several years. So I think that those dynamics, I think we've learned something through this pandemic. Uh, we're still not making, you know, we're still not making the number of cars that we need in this country because we don't have microchips. And we fortunately passed some legislation a couple of weeks ago to reestablish the microchip manufacturing uh, R&D and manufacturing business in the United States because we learned the hard way the critical impact of not being able to get uh, critical components I've used the word critical twice in the same sentence, I apologize, but into into uh, our manufacturing flow to produce the goods and services that we need or the goods that we need in this country. So I see some dynamic shifts here coming up in the, in the next 10 years that are going to have substantial impact on the uniform business. I see a little bit of an adjacent possible, a, a connection, because the chip world, you know, you really think of as robotically manufactured. So it is a bit of a mystery why so much of our our chip production went away uh, when you you know you can't imagine us producing a wafer right uh, a motherboard uh, by hand. It's not like someone is you know uh, sitting at a sewing machine making a motherboard, <laughs> but we still have bodies sitting at sewing machines to make to assemble you know much of our apparel and. I've certainly been wondering, you know, in the next 20 years, how much gets reshored and not just in United States and North America, how much gets reshored in every country that wears apparel, which of course is all of them, <laughs> you know, how much gets reshored in every country for apparel production uh, as our robotics get better? You mentioned even cutting. So cutting has gotten so much better because we have robots, you know, that are doing it. It's not somebody taking the sharpest shears they can find and trying to cut through 10 layers of fabric, right? We're cutting through, I don't even know, 30 layers, 50 layers at a time <laughs> with, with a machine. And uh, it's it, it's hard to imagine us not at some point um, being able to assemble a garment <laughs> on demand with a machine, you know? And I keep thinking... Um, at times, I, I bring this to uh, uniform people and saying, you know, pay attention to what Amazon is doing with uh, the Hanes and Gildans. You also mentioned those brands and what they're doing at Merch, right? So Merch, so people are loading, you know, 10,000 shirt 
designs to be screen printed every single day. I can go on and randomly order one of them. The garment is, you know, is produced instantly, you know, uh, uh, instantly printed and ships to me the next day. Well, how long will it take before Amazon, for instance, says, well, wait, why can't we just assemble the shirt on demand as well? So we don't need to buy the finished shirts and store them. Let's just buy millions of yards of of textiles, right? And and we'll just cut it, you know, sew it, print, you know, screen print it, and immediately it'll just go off, you know, into um uh you know a package. And so nearshoring, so Central America, at least for the North American market, is you know is nearshoring, and that. Um, that's very interesting to hear your perspective that that is going to continue to be, you know, a significant um, increase in the next decade. Um, and then I'm I'm the eternal optimist, right? People will disagree with me that, you know, it's still going to be too difficult. Even if we master certain robotics, it'll be too difficult to reshore certain aspects of apparel production. But so you're still going to have a significant percentage of uh, uniforms produced uh, in foreign environments. But my point is a lot. You're just going to you're going to see a return of a higher percentage uh, to let's call it this hemisphere production rather than just U.S. For, for numbers of reasons that I kind of listed earlier in the comments. And I do see that infrastructure expanding in Central America significantly. I was down in Honduras uh, a couple months ago uh, for a week, uh, both for my Martex response. Martex has a significant operation in San Pedro Sulo, Honduras, uh, because our trading partners in Gildan, uh, Haynes, and Fruit Loom have expansive production in Central America, in the Dominican, uh, some in Mexico. So we have a, a very a sizable operation in San Pedro Sulo, Honduras, that collects and sorts and uh, disseminates through to the proper plant for processing. So I've got to see an uh, expansion activity by the big producers, uh, some of which I've mentioned, uh, but a long list of other folks that are expanding their assets in Central America, that's going to have a significant impact on the U.S. market. And that's business right now that two years ago, pre-pandemic, was all sourced or a vast majority of, of that uh, increased output was sourced in the Far East. And those dynamics are changing. So the sourcing people by our wonderful uniform companies are very talented sourcing people, I'm sure are... are uh, absolutely up to speed on some of these aspects but it, you know just for somebody that's been down there in, in in the midst served as a board director with a sizable company in honduras has a business network a legal network in honduras i just know of some of these big significant expansion plans in honduras that's going to have an impact on the apparel business but certainly the uniform business as well so tom last question <clears throat> would you recommend this industry to uh, someone coming out of college would you tell a child or a nephew or a niece to to get into this uh business um you know what 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 does the uniform industry look like as um, a i'm going to go back to when i opened up uh, my comments at our sustainability session that i was a uh one of the several speakers uh who the my fellow speakers did a terrific job that day i was very thrilled with all of the folks that uh, got up and spoke uh that afternoon but when I opened up the comment, I said uh, uh, that 
it was wonderful for me to re-engage in the NAUMD. I was a member years ago uh, and went to many uh, conventions and had many friends uh, and associates across the board uh, that were members of the NAUMD. But it was um, I was really thrilled to come back to it because it was always an industry that uh, I recognized uh, as uh, the membership and the folks that worked in that is industry as just being their core DNA were just terrific people. They were spirited. They were energetic, uh, high level of integrity and standards. And uh, you get you get in trouble by generalization like this uh, across the board. So. Uh, you can get yourself in big trouble by making these statements. But as a rule and on a whole, it, it excelled above other environments that I have worked in. Okay. Unfortunately, I've encountered other environments as a board director and working for other private equity funds, et cetera, that brought a lot of challenges in terms of Tom Wheeler's standards, in terms of integrity and honesty and uh, how you conduct your business. Um it uh, is an industry that always brought sort of the best out of people. And I can say that socializing with uh, uh, the members, your current members or our current members, uh, that it was a wonderful environment. I still kind of feel like I did years ago that they, the folks that are down the road a little bit in their career, willing to spend the time and effort to mentor young people that enter our environment. We had a lot of young people at the NAUMD conference that had big, significant jobs, were making an impact, uh, that were self-confident, that were accomplished, folks in their 20s and 30s that have big jobs for our uniform companies. So it's so said to me, said to me that those are still environments that there's mobility, there's still the right infrastructure and the right uh, support and nurturing by folks that own those companies and uh, senior people that uh, have C-suite or uh, senior operating jobs, willing to take the time and effort to sort of mentor the young people. So I think, you know, my my takeaway from looking at this industry a few years down the road from where I was more deeply engaged was that those wonderful aspects of this industry have not changed, uh, that they still represent that same wholesomeness and integrity and standards that were in place uh, when I was the CEO at Fashion Air and uh, in the midst of uh, combat in terms of securing contracts and, you know, it, it's, uh, so I, I, to answer your question specifically, I still think it brings a young person tons of opportunity in terms of their career path in an environment that can be rewarding financially, that can be, uh, you know, rewarding spiritually and emotionally. And, uh, I, fully endorse that that's an inclination by somebody getting out of college, that it's a wonderful place to start your career. Excellent. Wonderful. Well said, Tom. Love it. I love it. I love it. And it was such a pleasure to talk with you today. Well, thank you.